Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Healthcare Whisperer Radio Show. My name is Hari Kulsa, and I am your host. I am a nurse practitioner and patient advocate. Uh, I have a company called Healthcare Whisperer, and you can find me at healthcarewhisperer.com. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at HariK108 or Facebook at Hari Kulsa or at Healthcare Whisperer. The purpose of this show is to provide information, tips, and tools to help you get through the maze of the healthcare system. It certainly can be daunting, uh, <laughs> daunting, scary, and it can also seem endless to you get a result if you get the one you're looking for. This show is about giving you just that information you need to help you get by, to help you get through. Uh, uh, today, today, before we uh, go on, uh, we have a wonderful guest today that I'm very excited about. Um, but first, I want to send out my heartfelt prayers and love to the six uh, Sikh families in Wisconsin who lost uh, their loved ones in that terrible massacre at their uh, Sikh temple. Uh, my Again, my heart and prayers are, are there uh, with them. Um, I'm waiting for my guest to call in. I have a wonderful guest today. Uh, her name is Karen Curtis. Uh, she is the founder of Campaign Zero. Uh, let me see where she's at. Uh, let me send her here. Let me get this message out to her. Uh, oh, there she is. Oh, hallelujah. Uh, I always get nervous before my guests. They always call in, and I'm like, where are they? Anyway, today I have Karen Curtis with me, and she is, as I said, the founder of the uh, not-for-profit organization called Campaign Zero, Families for Patient Safety. She she is a – this is a remarkable organization. Uh, What they do – she's also written a book uh, called Safe and Sound in the Hospital, Must-Have Checklist and Tools for Your Loved One's Care. Uh, she has worked tirelessly and has dedicated her life to helping people uh, be safe in the hospital. Uh, she, Karen's work is motivated and inspired by personal experience as an advocate for her father, husband, and son in several hospitals spanning three years. You know, that's all I'm going to say. I'm going to bring her on because she's amazing. I don't want to spend any more time not hearing what she has to say. Hello, Karen. Oh, hi, Hari. Um, thank uh, you very much. That was um, an over-the-top introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so nice of well, you. <laughs> I, well, I don't think it. so. Well, good, because you certainly deserve it, the work you're doing. I'm. Every time I think about this organization, I'm, I'm totally inspired by it. Um, oh. So thank you. Thank you so much for even taking the time. I mean, I oh, it's to... my pleasure. I love oh, what okay. you're doing. I wish I had the time to do the same thing. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful commitment on your part um, to host this program, and I appreciate the opportunity to share it with you. Oh yes, and I I know you have so much information, um, and I know just real quick, if anybody wants to call in, if they're listening, you can. The number is is eight zero five eight three zero eight three six three. And please don't hesitate if you want to call in and ask Karen a question. Um, so let's get right to it because I know you have a lot to say. And one of the things um, I first heard you when at, at a conference at the Patient Advocacy Conference in mm-hmm. California and I was riveted by your story. I I almost I mean I really I almost fell off my chair. I couldn't believe what you had been through and how you had risen up. So can you, you want to tell people about, you know, the that that story, your journey and how this began? Your work began? Thank you. Well, um it it did begin with um as you mentioned earlier, 
um, adverse events. That's what kind of the the wording that the medical world uses. Um, adverse events, which is basically um, a fancy way of saying um, terrible things um, happening in the hospital. Um, and I have to say, um, these terrible things do happen um, a, a lot. Um, we are not in the business of blaming people, and it, they they are totally attributable, I believe, to system failures. Um, hospitals are a little bit archaic in the way they're run, and I'd have to say more than a little bit chaotic. Right, right, chaotic. right. And that's yes. a sad state, um, but it's the truth. Um, things are getting better. Um, hospitals are... Um, more accountable now uh, than they ever have been. So I'd like to preface my sort of sad stories with some hope um, because it can be very depressing. It can be very frightening, too, um, when you hear the statistic, and it is an accurate one. And in fact, it's probably underreported, uh, but the latest data shows that one out of three patients in every hospital, it doesn't matter if it's a little old 25-bed hospital out in the country that time has forgotten, or a hospital that's at a very top um, uh, academic um, medical center. Um, they all have about the same experience, which is that one in three patients are accidentally harmed. Um, so that's it, high. It's not, that's, high. Oh, that's a scary number, isn't it? It is a scary number. Yeah, it is really a scary number. And oftentimes, um, patients and families don't realize it. For example, medication errors happen more than you can even imagine. Um, <laughs> despite the fact that there are about a dozen um, checks and balances along the way from the time the doctor prescribes it till it gets to your mouth or your vein, but still um, there are there's just an extraordinary number of um, medication errors. Now, a patient might not be harmed by it. The side effects might be very mild. Um, They may not even know, um, for example, that they got the wrong medication. Um, Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, it is a system failure when that happens, Mm -hmm. and it Mm -hmm. needs to be corrected. So Mm -hmm. in any event, um, how how I got started into this business is that our family um, had uh, about three years of pretty – uh, it's pretty significant um, health care challenges, uh, the first being that my dad was diagnosed with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which the short name for it is IPF. And it's when the lungs starts to, the lungs, actually plural, start to shut down um, because the cells are no longer elastic. Um, mm-hmm. They can't pick in oxygen, can't expel it. They become very brittle. Mm-hmm. So, so breathing um, is no, very difficult. Breathing is difficult, and, and actually patients eventually um, basically smother to death. Um, they can't take in oxygen or expel it. So um, in any event, there's no, it's one of those diseases, 40,000 a year um, are diagnosed. Um, there's no, uh, no, no one knows the reason for it. Um, and it's there's no treatment option really. Nothing can treat right. it, um, mm-hmm. and there's no cure except for lung transplant. Mm-hmm. Um, of the forty thousand who get the diagnosis, approximately four hundred get a lung transplant. So that's only one percent. Ninety nine die within four years. Ugh. So Ugh. my dad had a lung transplant. Uh-huh. He, he's the lucky one percent, and wow. he fought hard for that. We right. um, we petitioned 16 transplant centers, and 15 of them turned us down. But the very top one, um, the top one in the world, actually, because we even looked at transplant centers in Italy, um, the top one in the world took his case. And the surgery went really well. Uh, he came out flying colors. Um, this was in February. Um, and he was told that he'd be back on the golf course by the 4th of July. Oh. And um, that's like a second chance at life. That is, that's right, right. Like, I mean, that's um, like and, amazing. You know, First of all, I, I just want to stop you for a second, and, and I'm sorry uh, if I interrupt you sometimes, but no, do. Just, I mean, I mean, here's a great story. You know, just for people who are listening, you didn't give up. You know that that was like. Oh, no. I mean, you were you were already advocating, and you 
uh, went to 16. That's a lot of places to petition because, uh, you know, sometimes people go to one or two or three and they get turned down and that's it. They don't know what to do. But, you know, that's really great. I mean, that's a great story just right there that you just kept going, you know, and and it worked, you know. Well, it did, <laughs> and I really strongly encourage people to do that. Um, it's... Uh, it, it's all about, well, it isn't all about, because we learned it isn't just about the surgeon. Um, we, it, you know, different, um, it's funny, because among those 15 that we heard back from, or actually 16, um, the ones that turned them down, really, a lot of them had very different reasons. And mm-hmm. it was interesting that they took the same set of data mm-hmm. and came to different conclusions. And I, so I would encourage anybody who is dealing with anything that is, um, you know, a, a challenge. Um, it doesn't have to be as rare as IPF. Um, mm-hmm. Keep looking for answers. Um, yeah, I tell everybody. It. I tell everybody, yeah. second, third, fourth opinion, just keep going until something, you know, you either you find someone you you can work with or, you know, you get the answer, you, you know, you're looking for. So, right. yeah. Right. Exactly. So um, dad had this uh, lung of the gift of a 39-year-old um, man who wow. died and from a brain injury in a motorcycle crash. And, you know, I always tell people that it was a motorcycle crash because um, helmet laws are being repealed one by one in the states. And, um, uh, right, right, it, right. You know, I we were grateful for the lung, but, you know, I'm a huge advocate of keeping those motorcycle helmet laws in place. So am I. You're Uh, preaching to the choir on that one. (laughs) Yeah. So um, the the 39-year-old lungs were um, perfect in every respect. And Dad was starting his recovery, and it was we were told that it would be about six months in the hospital, and then he'd have to go to a rehab center for about another uh, did I say six months, six weeks in the hospital, and then the rehab center maybe for another couple of weeks before he could go home. And um, so he was about week four into recovery, and he uh, he had help going to the bathroom one morning, and um, the nurse left him and went to take care of other patients because, you know, they're taking care of eight people at a time. Um, But his CO2 levels had been low that morning, meaning that his oxygen uptake hadn't been quite up to snuff. So um, we didn't know this at the time, but he ended up um, falling going back from the bathroom. He he just, you know, he was kind of impatient. He got tired of waiting for her to help him, so he started back to bed on his own and, and fell and a goose egg started uh, rising on his forehead, and they immediately took him down for an MRI just to make sure that he was okay or to rule out that he hadn't had a head injury or spinal injury of any kind. And the MRI results were inconclusive, so they put him in this horizontal traction on a board um, and said, you know, we need a neurologist to evaluate you. Uh, he or she will be here in about two hours to hang tight. Well, oh. um he didn't. This was a Friday afternoon. Oh. And a, a neurologist did not show up until Sunday night, fifty-seven hours later. And oh. it was then yes. only because oh. I kept calling like every two hours. You know, mom and dad were just you know anxious, but you know waiting their turn. The resident on call just kept explaining that the neurologist was covering the um, ER and uh-huh. just couldn't get away. Uh-huh. And, but meantime, the uh, worst thing that you can ever do with a new lung, whether or any lung for that matter, if cystic fibrosis or IPF or pneumonia or COPD of any kind, and, and even anybody who has a cold, really, you don't want those lungs to collect fluid. You, you should always right. be in 30 degrees or greater. So for him to be horizontal for 57 hours was uh-huh. horrible. Yeah. And. As I said to the resident, I said, who is the champion for this new lung? Because you're setting him up for pneumonia. Well, sure enough, you know, I have to admit, I dropped all pretense of having any manners and just <laughs> lost it with this resident. Uh-huh. And in five minutes on a Sunday night, the neurologist was up there and gave Dad a quick 
a consult, which was basically wiggle your toes, what's the date, who's the president, and then he cleared them. That's all it was. It was a five-minute evaluation, and Dad was taken out of traction. But the next morning, he was in the ICU with pneumonia. So you can't lie yeah. that you, you can't you with anything long like you said you have to get up you have to move around you have to get the right. oxygen and you have to get the blood everything moving that's you know you have to cough you know all those things right. are very basic right yep right yep right. Wow. right so from pneumonia then when you're in the ICU some hospitals are changing this for people who are in the ICU are not allowed to have any physical activity at all. They can't right. get up and walk. And so what happens is they become very susceptible to blood clots. Oh. And so sure enough, that's what happened. Dad had recovered from the pneumonia, but then on another Friday afternoon, it was discovered that he had a blood clot in his arm. And they decided to take a wait-and-see attitude um, oh. until Monday morning. And by Monday morning, the clot had moved to his new lung, so he had a pulmonary embolism, which shut down lung function in one part of his new lung. So, um, and the reason why I'm actually kind of emphasizing the fact that these things happened on a Friday afternoon is because I would really love for everyone to understand that you can shoot a cannon through a hospital over the weekends. The... um, Right. Hospital staff is very lean. And right. You get people who are the part-timers. You get the people who are not very senior because, after all, the senior people, they get the good vacation times. They get right. their weekends off. And so you get people who are newbies. You get students. You get part-timers. Um, and it's lean because hospitals do not get the same reimbursement for a hospital room from insurance companies on a Saturday or Sunday night that they do on a Tuesday or Wednesday night. Really? I didn't know so, that. Really? Yeah. Well, what's the, yeah. did you ever ask what the logic to that is? Any, I, that's Wow, that, that's fascinating to me. I actually did not know that. Yeah. Oh. I don't know if it's a chicken or egg or what, you know, that they can't keep the hospitals filled, you know, so. Oh, it's crazy. That's crazy thinking. It is crazy. So, yeah, you have better time getting some help at Macy's on the weekend <laughs> than you do at in a or hospital. So, so the the other thing might be to bring, you know, if you're having a problem on the weekend, if you're advocating, bring a bullhorn, you know, and walk through. It's well, almost like you have to do that. You have to walk through the hall screaming almost. Yeah. yeah, and then hope you find somebody. And I sound so negative, but honestly. No, 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 you're not. <laughs> it is, it is, it's just really something to think about when you're planning. For example, I always tell people, even for outpatient surgeries, it's really tempting to want to do it on a Friday so that you can recover on Saturday or Sunday, Uh but don't. Because if anything goes wrong, if there's any complication, you want the A-team there. Um, You want a full range of services on a normal day, you're not going to have just one neurologist taking care of a whole hospital plus the ED. You're going to right. have several in most hospitals. Right, so, you have people assigned to floors. I mean, at our local hospital here, they actually have, you know, each service assigned to one or two floors. So you've got several roaming, at least during the week. Yeah. 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 And you have other, like, physical therapy, occupational therapy, all of those things right. are very important. Right. You have right. um, you have better um, nursing um, patient ratios. It's just, um, it just really behooves you to, if you have the option, not everybody does, but if you have a planned admission, try for a Tuesday or a Wednesday. Um, even Mondays are not great because we all experience Monday. It's that catch-up time. And, right. um, and you know, there are more distractions on a Monday. So Tuesdays and Wednesdays are the optimal times. Um, also, maybe it kind of goes without saying, don't plan for any surgery before a holiday weekend, like a long Labor Day weekend, Memorial Day weekend, 
Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's. Right. Stay away from right. the hospital. Yeah, yeah, I've been down that road with patients, and it's it's never pretty. It's never pretty, and it seems to always, it's a given that something's going to happen. You know, no matter what it is, you can't get into the right skilled nursing. And, and that's the other thing, don't transfer anywhere on the weekend. You know, don't go from one facility to another. Oh, you know, if you no. have to because then you're 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 getting to this even it's even worse some at the skilled nursing facilities. So you you know your father is in the ICU and it, it it didn't turn out as as you had hoped. Right. Well, he had the he had um one blood clot that one weekend and then he had a blood clot in his leg a different time. And he came out of surgery with a stage 1 bed sore. Um, which is because uh, it was a nine-hour yeah. surgery, so his skin broke down on his um, what I call his sit bone. And now, bear in mind, this was in February, but we did not get an alternating air pressure mattress from him until June. Um, they kept trying the same things over and over again that just weren't working, and no one ever mentioned to us. And this is critical. This is basic. You know, if you have fragile skin that looks like it's about to erupt red or warm, tender or scraped, ask for an alternating air at uh, air mattress because it will keep the pressure points, um, uh, keep any um, single areas from experiencing a pressure point on that fragile skin area. But in this hospital, apparently they were short on them or didn't believe in them and we didn't get one until June. Wow. And then um, Dad suffered from C. diff. Mm. Obviously, um, had been taking a lot of antibiotics, and his immune system was, of course, repressed. Um, anybody who has a transplant, their immune system is repressed to about nothing. Um, right. It's just a strategy to help prevent rejection. It, right. It gradually builds up again, but at the beginning, that's very important. Um, right. So he had no defenses for C. diff. Um, and, of course, then he picked up MRSA as well. Um, so he was in the ICU on three separate occasions with MRSA, which is a staph infection. Right, uh, right, right, which is, can be so, very difficult to get rid of. Both C. diff and MRSA together are a very bad combination. They're two, you know, bacterias that are are deadly, can be deadly. They are. They yeah. are. They are. And, and ultimately... Um, I, that is really what killed him. Is because he could never. He would bounce. He bounced back from MRSA the first time. Um, he even bounced back from C. diff the first time. But they take their toll, and yeah. Uh, yeah. he just couldn't um, withstand the repeated bouts of MRSA and C. diff. And, um, and of course, all along the way, he kept going back to the ICU where there was no ability for him to move around or to exercise or to get his lung functioning. So he was never able to get off of, right after his um, transplant, he was on a little bit of oxygen, not a lot, just a little, and it was only at night. But the longer he went without exercising, the longer he was on oxygen. And that dependence on oxygen is just insidious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's hard. So while so. while this was going on, I mean, you had to sort of hit the ground running. You had to learn these things, and this was sort of this is, I mean, learn what you're dealing with. I mean, you never knew about alternating mattresses, uh, pressure mattresses. You know, you know, you didn't know a lot of the what what you learned. You probably didn't even really know about MRSA and C. diff. You know what it could do to the body, or how to handle a skin sore, or you know what were they taking care of it. You know what you could do. And that must have been, I mean, uh, it must have been frightening, and yet you didn't have time to feel afraid because you had to keep, like, watching. Is that? Well, and, too, I felt like, um, I really felt it was like a surreal experience because when I think back on it, um, and maybe this is totally Pollyanna-ish, when my brothers and sisters and I, and there were six of us, we all made a commitment to be my dad's advocates and sit with my mom, be with my mom, really, who is there day in and day out for seven months, um, you know, just to, to be there for their, to provide what 
we thought was advocacy, which is emotional support and to kind of, you know, maybe speak up for dad and mom on some occasion, but we didn't really have any idea what that might be about. And we assumed really patient-centered care. We didn't know the term for it, Mm -hmm. but time and time again, these things really took us off guard. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember just being absolutely stunned, stunned. Right. And mm-hmm. when I'm stunned personally, I'm useless. Right, you know, right, right. I, right. It's, yeah. it's, it, it was very hard to um, fathom that they weren't putting my dad's best interest first. And I was always trying to figure out, okay, now who is his champion? Who is watching for the lung? Who is coordinating care? And every mm-hmm. time I felt like I knew who was coordinating care, I'd find out, no, that person's left. Right, I really right. Oh, their rotation is over. Their rotation yeah. is over. They're gone now. They're off the floor. Oh. Right. Okay. And then you have so, to bring the next person up to speed, and then they have to know who you are. And it's, it's yeah, that's how hospitals work, and that's what a lot of people don't understand. And that in itself can be a reason for some of these errors to occur, you know, exactly. that – the the constant changeover of personnel, especially on the on the medical, especially if you're a big teaching hospital, you're just gonna yeah. have a constant. And it was a big hospital, yeah. It yeah. Was. yeah, yeah, yeah. So so there you so, are. You're yeah. You're learning all this stuff, and you're what? You, you sudden something must have triggered you to get to. Well, then Dad died. Yeah, and, and we're um, so, so I'm so sorry. I mean, what can, what more can someone say? Yeah, oh, I know. Yeah. So then my husband went into the hospital a couple of months later, exactly two Aye. months later, for what was supposed to be just a routine surgery. And his doctor really actually bullied my husband out of getting a second opinion. Um, uh-huh. And and long story short, he had referred my husband to one of his buddies. Uh-huh. We didn't know it at the time, but this doctor, the surgeon, wanted to get some more practice with the type of um, procedure Sandy, my husband, was having, which is a bowel resection, um, which is pretty common among older adults. And the reason why his doctor said, oh, this is just routine, it's no big deal. Um, mm-hmm. But we've learned that every every procedure is a big deal because there's a chance for infection, there's a chance for um, an inexperienced surgeon to cut the wrong place, which and right. both of those things happened to my husband. Um, the surgeon sort of missed the mark and he was not properly prepared for surgery and he just got a raging, raging uh, VRE infection. And the surgeon missed the fact that the stitches didn't hold. And so, um, and the nurses kept ignoring my husband's concerns that his stomach was getting harder and harder and more distended and he was in terrible pain. Um, but for three days, they ignored him and just said, oh, you know, that happens after surgery. And, right, the um, famous last word. Yeah, so his um, bowels, which not had, had not been properly evacuated, his intestinal uh, fecal matter leaked into his bloodstream. So oh, he's got a septic. Oh, my God. Yeah. So... He was in the hospital for several weeks and almost died. And um, then we did end up, he had to have uh, two corrective surgeries where we went somewhere else. But it, all in all, it took him about 18 months to recover. Right, right. So, well, well, and meanwhile, here you are. I mean, at, by that point, I mean, it's an, you know another loved one, and you're, you, you were a little more cognizant of things at that point, I imagine. You were a little more vigilant to uh, what was going on. Uh, or was it you still were like, why is this, you know, what's happening? You know, I mean, it must well, have been. Well, it was a little bit more. I mean, when his doctor, when he got the VRE, um, which is called vancomycin resistant enterococcus, which is sort of the stage beyond MRSA. Um, MRSA can be treated with a variety of antibiotics, right. including right. vancomycin. But vancomycin is the antibiotic of last resort. So if you right. have a VRE, which it means that that particular strain 
of um, bacteria is doesn't even respond to the antibiotic of last resort. So then what happens is they have to start uh, experimenting. They have to create a cocktail of antibiotics. And it's kind of hit or miss to see if you will respond to a particular cocktail of antibiotics. Yeah. Right, well, right. the doctor, his doctor, was very being very casual about it. He said, "Oh, you know, your husband has VRE, and I stopped one of my colleagues in the hall and said, do, do you think this will work?'" And I just lost it again. <laughs> right, said, right, you know right. We need a specialist. I'm not going to leave my husband's fate to the kind of to the person that you snag in the hall for a chit chat. We have to get right, right. somebody in here who deals with infection all the time. And I insisted that they they didn't have one on staff at that hospital. And I said, well, find one. Go to the nearest hospital and rob their talent. Do whatever you have to do. Get the right. specialist in there. And, I, you know, I, you have to do that. You really, really have to be very assertive and you have to know your facts. Mm-hmm. Um so you researched the the VRE. I mean, you you got you you got on the computer and said, "What is this?" Right? Well, exactly. I mean, you, when you my dad had MRSA, yeah, and my sister and I, we used to joke. I mean, you have to find your lighter moments. Right. <laughs> no, no, I'm there. Say, I get it. I get it. <laughs> when Dad had MRSA, you know, we were trying to look for anything, and Nancy and I would say, "Well, at least he doesn't have a VRE." And so, when we, you know, because we thought, okay, there's hope in this. It's treatable. At least he doesn't have a PRE. So then when my husband gets a PRE, I knew exactly. And and, and I have to say, though, you know, one of the things that happens when you have a loved one who is undergoing, you know, some really sort of terrible things um, or you're under stress because you're not quite sure what to do, even if it's not terrible, even if you're just worried, your IQ drops about 80 points. And everybody... <laughs> That's true. I mean, you, you you become kind of stupid at the one moment and you have to, somebody's got to snap you out of it. <laughs> well, and actually that's why people like you exist because, you know, even graduates... PhDs and Google University, which is what I am, I very rarely turn to research resources because I was in knots all the time. And I have to say, I felt like I was always reeling. I literally, Dad was taking the body blows, but I was feeling it. And um, I was deaf, dumb, and mute, I have to say. A lot mm-hmm. of the time, um, mm-hmm. um, and again, it goes back to you know you walk into a place with certain operating assumptions. You know, foremost in my mind was that it would be patient-centered, that that they would put dad first. And when that didn't happen, time and time again, mm-hmm. it just I had a hard time reconciling it. So that's just me. Other people handle stress a lot differently and keep their cool probably better than I did. Oh, and I would not. No, no, no. I think, you know, it doesn't sound like it to me. I mean, it sounds like even through your stress, you knew that you had to do something. You had to push. You had to push back. And that's really what it's all about in the hospitals. You always have to push back because they, you go to the hospital and you think, they know what they're doing or, yeah, right. they're they're talking to me like they like they know what they're doing, like they have a plan. And then you come to find out that there is no plan and nobody's talking to each other. And, right. you know, and, it, it, and you have to push back. You have to just, you know, you don't want to yell and scream because then, you know, they call the, you know, the psych unit, you know, and they come and talk to right. you. But but you have right. to just continue to push, and it's difficult. But it does, you know. Yeah, you were stressed, but here you are with campaign zero. You know, you you saw what was happening. <laughs> I mean, it's, well, I did, and actually, um, after all of this happened, I um, one of my very best friends, uh, Lisa, called me one day. Her husband had collapsed and was on his way to the hospital. Um, he, he was in a diabetic coma. They didn't even know he had diabetes. 
And yeah. she knew they were now in for the long haul, and he would be in the hospital for a while. And she said, Karen, I'm really, really worried about infection. Your family has been through the mill with infection. Tell me what I should be doing. Mm-hmm. And of all the infections we had experienced, I had not one clue how to prevent it. Mm-hmm. So I told her that. So while she was in the hospital with Robert, her husband, that first day, I went to the Internet and I read everything I could possibly read, and then I put together my first checklist for her. And I went up to Walgreens, which is our drugstore, and I bought things like alcohol-based hand gel and mm-hmm. uh, alcohol wipes to wipe down, you know, all of the surfaces. And I um, got him, um, uh, oh, I made little tent cards to put on his tray table, you know, please wash your hands. Um, mm-hmm. And so I bought this and I dropped it off on her front door in a little, you know, care package. Um, and that was how really what inspired me to start Campaign Zero. Because then I started thinking, wow, you know, if we had known all of this, you know, I would have had these gels. I would have had these alcohol right. weapons. They're sitting there idly watching the golf channel with my dad. I would have been happy to clean, you know, the the um the surfaces, and the, the surfaces. The surfaces hey, look, and the Yeah, yeah, and, and that's like the really you know, if you only do that, I mean, you, there's other things to do, but but that's what I tell, you know, I, I love when, when I go to go with clients and they take their bag, you know, I say, pack these things, and they get it, and they say, here, Hari, help me clean, you know, and I'm like, yeah, right. hey, look, we have a caller, let's see what the caller has, if they have a question for us, so okay. hold on here, all right, hi, caller, I don't have your name here, can you hear me? Hello? Hi, yes. Do you have a question for Karen? Hello? Hello, are you there? Oh. So, Karen, are you there? Yes. Yes, I'm here. Uh I think I lost. Yeah, yeah, she must have gotten... She's still there. Let me see if I can. Could you hear me talking when when I was yes. asking? Mm-hmm. Okay, let me see if I. Hi, are you there? Do you have a question for Karen? Hello. Okay. I guess she's not there. She must. She's not hung up. Anyway, uh, I'll put her back on hold. Okay, so um, Karen. So let's go back to where I, I I don't know what happened to this caller, but uh, caller, if you're there, I'm sorry that we didn't get you. If you want to hang up and call again, maybe there's something wrong with this connection. So, uh, or I'll try in a minute. Okay, so um, here, uh, so where we you you so you took those things into her. That must have been uh, really wonderful for her. To I'm sorry, I missed that last part. Okay, for your friends, you you took these oh, things, you made this checklist. Yeah. Yes, yes. Ma- and, and that's when I um I I decided that I wanted to dig into all of the other things, you know, that it affected um my dad and husband. And so I I did um investigate, you know, blood clots. How do you prevent blood clots? How do you prevent C diff? You know, how do you prevent bed sores? So that's how I got started. And about this time, too, um, a a new uh, term was coined, and that's never events. Um, And that was a real epiphany for me because when Medicare came out and said um, there are common and preventable hospital hazards that no one should ever have to suffer um, called never events, and they listed them. Um, everything that, you know, the top ten described my dad's case completely, as well as my husband's, um, except for a few things. So, but bed sores, top ten. No one should ever get a bed sore. They're entirely preventable. Um, And they're dangerous, too, because they're a tunnel for infection. And that's also a top ten 
uh, never event. So that actually was such a relief to me because it made me think I'm just I, I'm not crazy that you know or we just or that it was just bad luck. And I think that's what a lot of people feel like. Oh, you know what? I have my story, and she has her story, and he has his story. We just had bad luck. Well, it's not. It's part of a trend. And when people understand that it's part of a trend and that they could be vulnerable, um, then people start to do something about it. Um, as long as we we harbor this illusion, really, that it's bad luck and light, a lightning strike and it could never strike me or my family, you mm-hmm. know, people don't prepare, which is the hardest part of my job. Um, on the one hand, I sort of feel like people think, oh, there's Karen Curtis, you know, she's like... Chicken Little, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. <laughs> uh. um, but um, but I but I take comfort in, you know, I don't like the data, but I take comfort in knowing that we're doing the right thing, you and I, because uh-huh. way too many people, because it's not bad luck, it's actually a pattern. It is, and I was thinking about that when I was, you know, uh, thinking about you coming on and, and this whole issue of patient safety, and a lot of it is just inertia on the part of staff. It's, it's There are systems in place. You, you mentioned that right at the beginning, that there's, you know, systems in, you know, that, that it's really the hospital and the systems and the, it's like this, this elephant you have to try to change, to yeah. move, and you know, even when you show people that in hospitals that this is, you know, or, you know, uh, staff, that if, you know, if you do it this way, uh, you can reduce problems. Even then it's difficult. I mean, you can go into hospitals now. I mean, since people like you have started doing your work, you see everywhere, at least at, like I, in the Boston hospitals, especially I, I've noticed I think Brigham and Women's is, and Beth Israel, the big ones, you know, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands, everywhere you go, everywhere, you know, in patients' rooms, everywhere. And yet I still, when I'm there, see people not washing their hands. Right, right. And it's still the overall, the average for doctors, not the average, what is it, uh, 50% still don't wash their hands, so half. And, and and that really hasn't changed in the last few years, um, despite the increased awareness. And, yeah, yeah. you know, we can chalk it up to arrogance. We can chalk it up to busyness. Um, but the reason why it's a system, why I believe it's not a, a human problem so much as a system problem, is because the system should hold them accountable. The system, you know, a good management system would have metrics, and would have um, compensation tied to performance. Yes. And, and that's yes. what would happen in a, in a company, in a well-run company. And hospitals have never been particularly well-run. And, you know, hosp- and doctors, you know, have kind of held them hostage just because of, and, you know, a crazy uh, compensation um, system where, you know, patients, are not really the customers because they don't pay the bill, and it's the doctors who drive revenue. So right, right, right. You know, and famous doctors of, drive more revenue. <laughs> you know, famous yeah, research exactly. doctors. Yeah, exactly. You know, one thing here in Boston that I that that hasn't been instituted, but is the law um, that went into effect a year ago, January, is that hospitals have to have consumer boards now that advise yes. them. And yes. I mean, they they can't just be placated. It's the law. They have to have the consumer board. And I'm sure right. you know this, but I'm, I'm bringing it up again because I think this is a – I mean, have you worked with any boards that are consumer-motivated um, uh, or a part of hospitals? Is that one way that you're getting things done? How is it you're working your campaign to reduce these kind of medical errors? I mean, I know one thing is – um, and you, you've alluded to these these checklists, but in your book, um, uh, yes, your book, uh, you know, safe and sound. The hospital must have checklists and tools for your loved one's care. Uh, mm-hmm. The these checklists. Um, well, the, I, I first of all, where can people get this? Where can people get these checklists? Um, it's on Amazon. So Amazon, you just okay. go Amazon.com. Yeah. Okay. So the book is on Amazon. 
and I appreciate your asking. Because oh no, I tell I, I I tell all my clients to get it, and I like to download the the checklist for people when they're going to the hospital. Yeah, well, the checklist cover from Campaign Zero. Yes, you can download those, and they cover the most common um, and preventable never events. Um, the book has a lot more information um, and about how to manage a hospital stay, um, uh-huh. because I, the number one thing you have to do when you and I, and I learned this the hard way, is to take notes, copious notes, um, and be prepared with your questions uh, when doctors make their rounds um, because it, they come once a day, if if that. And that's uh-huh. your only opportunity to get your questions asked. Also, when you you know, record their answers and you jot down things that happen during the day um, and you show your records um, to doctors and nurses, um, they're more likely to believe you if you've caught something, if you've actually written it down. There's something Mm -hmm. about taking, it takes the emotion out of communication when you have something in writing. So, um, you might, like in the case of um, my dad situation, um, I, I talked to a doctor who was about to give him a dose of heparin. And I said, you know, did you look at dad's chart? I think he's already on heparin. Um, and the doctor just screamed at me. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Mm-hmm. He didn't say thank you for catching it. I could have overdosed your dad, mm-hmm. and I think it's because I was just really hesitant, and I it was just as if my words were you know kind of challenging. But if mm-hmm. I had had a list of the medications that Dad was already on and said to him, "Would you mind checking this list?" Um, mm-hmm. You know, and the doctor could read it. There's something different about that. It takes the emotion out of it. Mm-hmm. So, I think. Um, so that's another reason why I think having a, a journal, and you don't have to buy my book. You could just, you know, go out and, and buy a notebook um, and mm-hmm. and and jot down your notes. Um, but but, we but also your book have, offers more than just a journal. It offers, inf- you know, it has a lot of information in it, you know. And well, I think the I think more information you have when you go to the hospital and the yeah, more – re- go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I think fine. a lot of people don't realize that 20% of patients are back in the hospital within 30 days. Yeah. Um, and yeah. the older you are, the more likely that is to happen. And the reason for that is that discharge is hurried and kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, you're throwing a lot of information at somebody, a, a patient who is already compromised um, emo- emotionally and physically. And it's done in a very quick way, and this is such a crucial time because medications usually change. So we have a process in the book that's very um, that really requires that nurses kind of slow down and explain everything. Also, there are very very common signs of problems that can happen right after a hospitalization. And if you just have this list and you know what to look for, then you can get help for your loved one before it ends up in a hospitalization. Because lots of times people don't, you know, they don't want to go back to the hospital, so they don't mention a problem. But if you're there to know what to look for and to know what to listen for, then you can get help. Right, and it's things like a fever, headaches. I mean, I'm looking at some of the things you have here, like just for after surgery. Um, and, you know, you might think, well, there's a nurse there. Well, a nurse is on, like you said earlier on, there's only like eight or nine, you know, they have eight, you know, anywhere between six and eight patients, right, or who knows. Or it depends on the hospital. Yeah. And 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 if you you really need someone to be, to be watching for these signs in the hospital as well as yeah. when you go home. Because they yeah. will send you home as soon as the doctor, and it can, as you said, as soon as the doctor says, 
ready for discharge, that means, and what that translates as into is medically stable. And what does medically yeah. stable mean? It means you're not running a fever, your blood pressure's okay, your labs are okay, and you're eating and going to the bathroom. But it right. doesn't really mean that there might not be something else or you're, you know. And so as soon as they say that, the case manager's in there and you're gone. Right. So, and also, 70, 70% of the staph infections that people pick up in the hospital have not shown up yet when somebody leaves the hospital. So they could be walking out of there symptom-free, but actually just about to show or just about to feel the effects of infection. And infection, MRSA, for example, shows up in a little um, a, a little thing that looks like a, 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 a bite on the skin, a, a bug right. bite. Well, if you don't know that and you don't know that it's it's possible to be discharged with affection, an infection. Mhm. Oh, I lost you. Oh, dear. Karen, we got lost. Call back in if you get a chance. If uh, I don't know what happened, we got disconnected. So, Huh. Anyway, so that's really um uh, so so Karen got disconnected, a little technical uh problem here. Uh Karen, if you can hear me, call back in. We'll get you for the last few minutes. Um, you know, this stuff is really fascinating, uh, this, uh, you know, really important for everybody to know, these checklists uh, campaign that Karen has put together, which you can get at um, uh, www.campaignzero.org, uh, and here she is. Oh, technology, Karen, I just don't know how to do this. <laughs> <laughs> but it's happened, you know, it's happened before. It happened to me once, and I was like my uh, – anyway, so I was just sort of rambling on. About, I gave him your website and um, – Thank you. And because um, – so so we were talking about, you know, the MRSA and not knowing what it is. And, you know, people may be saying to themselves, um, well, how, how how would I know? You know, you know, how – oh, caller's back. Let me try to get this caller online here. Okay, okay, let me try to see if I can. Let's see. Hi, this is Hari. Um, and if you're a caller calling in, uh, could you say hello to us? Hi, this is Doug Hall with Pulse of Florida. Oh, hi, Doug Hall. Do you have a question or a comment for uh, yes. Karen? I'm sorry I kept you on hold. I couldn't get you on, so no, I apologize. No, that's fine. I wanted to follow up when you lost your, your caller just a moment ago. And I wanted to follow up on, I think, where she was going. Um, okay, well, um, she's are, here. We have a, yeah, yeah, Karen's on now, so go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, Hari, I'm a patient safety advocate and an and RN. And uh, I, I I agree with everything that um, that has been said. And in addition to that is to monitor carefully for sepsis symptoms that he, mm-hmm. all the, the whole time that the person's in the hospital and then also uh, pre-discharge and post-discharge and uh, sepsis, uh, some, some symptoms are, they come on fast and they're they're uh, just tragic. So I just wanted to add that one piece because I think that's where the uh, your host or your, uh, your, your guest was going with that when uh, she dropped off. So I just wanted to add that. And... Uh, if I could just add my my opinion to all this, as I agree with everything that's been said, is the the conditions are atrocious now in hospitals, and instead of trying to change the culture of individual hospitals or a culture of an individual unit, even the culture of an individual, uh, my position is to enlist family patient advocates or a professional patient advocate to be with the patient as often and as as, mm-hmm. as much as possible, 60 minutes per hour if possible, and to monitor for best practices and to be very assertive for best practices. 
that is the washing of the hands and for barrier techniques and sterile technique when necessary and the seven rights of medication administration and to double check the chart for duplicates on medication. I think a third party is absolutely necessary now for the patient to bring in a third party to double check everything because conditions are, are so out of control at this time. And this is the way to put a layer of protection between you and healthcare. I think that's a great idea. I can't disagree with on that. I think, you know, being an advocate myself, I've seen the difference it makes. And so, um, yeah, thanks so much for your call, Doug. We're just about almost out of time, so I want to wrap up. But I, I'm sorry I kept you on hold so long. And, uh, no, that's good. Um, and, and thank you for the info. I think it was great stuff you said. Um, uh, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Good point. Right. So, um so Karen, yeah, we're we're coming towards the end, but um uh you know, I could talk. Well, I'm going to bottom line is I'm going to have to have you back on in a, in a couple months. I mean, that's just the bottom line. If you're willing be, because, you know, we got to go through these checklists. We still got so much to talk about. You know what I mean? I, if you're willing, I am. <laughs> I'm sure yes, the audience of would would, of would love to hear. I mean, and just before you go, there's one I know we only have a few we have about 2 minutes. The story about your son I tell all the time about how you called an ambulance from the hospital to take him to another hospital. Was that you? Yes, yes. I thought, I mean, I tell people, if you're not happy and you're not getting, you can go to another hospital. And this is what this person who started Campaign Zero did for her son. And I thought that was a remarkable thinking. I thought that was brilliant. I, 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 I really, I use that story all the time. Oh, well, I'm glad. I mean, because it was, you know, it was really born of des- desperation. You know, I had just had it. Uh, you know, I that's not something I would have done before I had all the experience with my dad and my husband. But, you know, it comes to your kid, and nobody messes with your kid, right? Right. <laughs> Get out of my way. I am Mother yes. Bear. Get out of my yes. way. <laughs> exactly. I, but- I had just had it. Yeah, and yeah. I think I mean it's 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 a story. I, I I love that story, and I tell my clients, you know, this is what being an empowered patient is. You know, what you know, you 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 do what has to be done, and we think we can't do it, but you can. You know, and they're oh, you're going you're going out and you know medical against medical orders. Well, bye bye. You know, I'm going to take care of my yeah. child or my my loved one. Exactly. So anyway, exactly. Uh, I. Yeah, so I wanted to get that in because you didn't mention it, but to me that was one of the most, mar- after everything you've been through, to have had that insight was phenomenal to me. You know, I, I, I don't well, think I would have thought that way. <laughs> <laughs> I Honestly, it felt like survival. It really did yeah. at that point. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, I, I knew my son. I, you know, there was just something about the situation. The tests were inconclusive, and my son, I just looked at him, and he just didn't look that and there was just no way in hell I was going to put him in a surgeon's hands if it wasn't absolutely necessary. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So it was... Okay, well, I'm sorry that this is over. I mean, we're we're just... Yeah, but... But I just, again, you know, people can go. I'll give the website again, uh, uh, campaignzero.org. Uh, your book is Safe and Sound in the Hospital. You can get it on Amazon. Again, your name is you know Karen Curtis. I really encourage people to go to the website and look at these wonderful checklists. You've done a marvelous job, and really, Thank I hope we can, I can have you back on, and maybe we can get you know I other patients. To. Oh, good. Oh, I love those words. Yeah. I love to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, sure. yeah. So maybe we can even have a panel. That would be fun to have a panel. That would you know, be patients. Fun. Yeah, yeah, because I had someone else on who did uh, Shut Up and Stay Alive. I don't know if you've seen that book. What a great but, title. Yeah, it's about the same kind of issues she had with you, with with uh, her father and mother in the hospital, so same same, same kind of things. I think it was her mother. Anyway, Karen, thank you very much. Okay, and, well, thank um, you, and um, have a wonderful evening, and we'll be in touch, okay? Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay. All okay. right, keep up your good Bye-bye. work. Bye-bye. All right, thank thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
So, everybody, that was Karen Curtis, a wonderful, and thank you, Doug Hall, for calling in. And, you know, uh, it's always great when people call in and we get to talk about, you know, there's so many issues around patient safety. You can't talk about it enough. Talk to your friends, and thank you. We'll be back in a few weeks, and we'll have Karen on again. So thank you, everyone, for listening, and have a wonderful evening. Bye-bye.